Well, good morning again. If you can turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24, that'll be our sermon text for this morning. Matthew 24. As, uh, as we turn there, why don't we pray together, ask for God's blessing on His Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we come before You again. We, we come because we, we long to hear from You. We long to, to hear uh, from You about Your grace found in Your Son. Uh, we, we come to hear truth. Uh, we come to learn about you and learn about uh, your mercy and learn about your plans and, and learn about our world, the world that you made, to learn about what life uh, really means and uh, what life is really about. We pray, Father, that as we turn to your word now, that you would open our hearts and minds, that you would pour out your spirit on us, uh, that we would have open ears, that we would understand, Father, and that you would work in us that we would have a will to obey, to, to live in light of your word in a way that brings you glory, in a way that lifts up your son. Work in us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So our scripture reading is Matthew 24, the whole chapter. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains." Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation." such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Whenever the, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his house to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, who will set him over all his possessions? But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants, and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." What happens in your heart when troubles happen in the world? And think about some of the big disasters we've seen even in just the past 10, 15 years or so. Uh, the tsunami uh, in Thailand of 2004, when 230,000 or so people in 12 countries died. Or uh, the earthquake that hit Haiti in 2010, killing over 200,000 people. The, the tsunami that hit Japan in 2011, right, that, which killed numerous people and affected two nuclear power plants. Of course, the destruction of the Twin Towers in 2001. Uh, seemingly countless wars over the past 20 years, right, the war in Darfur or in Iraq or in Pakistan or Yemen or Somalia or Gaza or Sudan uh, and numerous other places. We have had shootings here at home. 
the school shootings, right? The Amish school shooting in 2006, uh, the Virginia Tech shooting in 2007, uh, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in 2012. Of course, the racially motivated shooting of 2015 at Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. What happens in your heart when troubles happen in your world? What is your response? How do you respond? How do you react? Are you scared? Right? Does the, 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 do those disasters, are they a reminder of the precariousness of life? Do they remind you of the reality of danger and the stench of death? Maybe, maybe you're numb or, or hardened to them. You know, yet another disaster, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people have died again. We see it on the news. We, then a, a commercial for shaving cream or tennis shoes or Disneyland comes on and, and our heart just moves on from there. Or maybe we move ourselves on, right? We, we change the channel to distract ourselves from the reality that's on the news. Or do you weep? Do you mourn over those things? Do they break your heart? What about things that hit closer to home? Uh, troubles at, at work or, or troubles in your home, troubles in your marriage or uh, trouble with your kids, friendships gone awry. What happens in your heart when troubles happen in your world? Well, Matthew chapter 24 is about something that seems remote. It seems remote to us. It seems obscure. We even have an obscure name that we apply to Matthew 24, right? It's, it's in the realm of eschatology, right? Uh, eschatology means the doctrine of last things or the doctrine of ultimate things. And when, especially maybe when we use that word, it kind of seems that we can safely ignore it, right? It's just this weird, strange thing, eschatology, whatever that means, and, and we can just kind of set it aside and move on to chapter 25 or actually, no, chapter 26, <laughs> <clears throat> well, part of Matthew 24 is about uh, the return of Jesus. It is about the end of the world as we know it. Um, but Jesus is not trying to be obscure. He's actually being pastoral. And uh, so often we get caught up in kind of eschatological speculation uh, that we miss out on Jesus' pastoral consolation. Really, I think we could summarize the, the, the eschatological scheme, right? The plan for history that Jesus gives in three sentences. He teaches in this chapter that, that, that there will be a time of trouble of unspecified length beginning in the days of Jesus' first disciples and continuing even to our day. Immediately after that, Jesus will return. Which means that though we have no clue as to the day or the hour, uh, Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, there may be other passages which nuance this, but here in Matthew 24, the plan Jesus gives is really just two steps. Trouble and then Jesus. And our outline uh, this morning, which you can see in your bulletin, the main two points we're going to talk about are enduring trouble and staying awake. Enduring trouble and staying awake. Well, Jesus is here in the beginning of Matthew 24. He's leaving the temple. His arguments with the religious leaders are over, at least for now. And uh, we're still left wondering how it's all going to pan out in the end. 
And while Jesus is leaving, his disciples point out the temple buildings to him. And Jesus responds in verse 2 by saying, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This, of course, intrigues the disciples. So when they get to where they're going, when they get to the Mount of Olives, uh, Jesus sits down, his disciples come to him again, and they ask some follow-up questions, right? You can see them in verse 3. They say to Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And uh, they're, they're really asking two questions, fundamentally. They're saying, okay, when will these things be? They mean the destruction of the temple. When's that going to happen? When will the de- temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of Jesus coming in the end of the age? So for the disciples, maybe these questions went hand in hand. Maybe they were distinct in their minds. I don't know. But um, Jesus responds first to the second question by telling them what the sign of the coming trouble, what the sign of his coming is not, right? The sign of his coming is not trouble. He says four things about trouble. He says that trouble is, is necessary, so don't be alarmed. He says it will be prolonged, so, so don't give up. He says it will be severe, so don't overvalue this life. And he says that the trouble will end abruptly, so, so don't be taken in. You can see those are, are four sub-points under point one. So first, trouble is necessary. Don't be alarmed. Beginning in verse 4, Jesus really outlines the trouble that they're going to experience He says, don't be misled. Uh, Lots of people are going to come and pretend to be him. Uh, There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes, the persecution of Christians, and on account of which people will fall away from Jesus. There will be false prophets, deceptive teachers to lead people astray. There will be an increase of lawlessness and a lack of love. And Jesus says that all these things according to verse 6, must take place. Now, what does that mean that they must take place? Somehow, Jesus is saying, somehow these things are a part of God's plan. That these things aren't outside of God's control, right? The trouble that we experience, the, the wars and the famines and the earthquakes, even persecution, it's not outside of God's control, But somehow, maybe mysteriously, they are actually a part of God's purposes for history. So Jesus says, don't be alarmed. These things must take place. Now, really, this is the opposite of what we think when something goes wrong. Uh, When something goes wrong in life, we think, where was God? Uh, If he loved me, this wouldn't have happened. Jesus says, don't be alarmed, for this must take place. Wars and famines, tsunamis and church splits, somehow all of these things are a part of God's plan. Now, uh, this isn't the place for me to defend God. I'm not going to, Jesus is not trying to bring up a philosophical puzzle to solve about God's goodness and evil in the world. He's actually trying to encourage us with God's sovereignty. He's saying, don't be alarmed. God's got this, right? It's all a part of his plan. You don't need to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, 
very often uh, the smallest things go goes wrong in life and I begin to, to rail against the world. Of course, what I'm really doing is railing against God, right? He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing. He loves me. Don't be alarmed. Right? Don't be afraid. Don't be upset. Don't be anxious. Don't be frustrated. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Jesus says the trouble is necessary don't be alarmed. And then he says the trouble will be prolonged, so don't give up. Uh, notice again verse 6. Uh, Jesus again, he says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Trouble is not the end, Jesus says. Then he goes on in verses 7 to 8. It says, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The trouble is not the end. In fact, trouble is just the beginning. Jesus uses this phrase, birth pains, because for Jesus, what we think of as the end of the world is really just the beginning of another Jesus is looking forward to a new creation, and he's saying that these troubles, that the troubles that we experience every day are somehow the beginning signs of the birth of a new world, that something more is coming through all of this. And he goes on to talk about how hard it will be for his people, that they will deliver you up, that you will be hated, that many will fall away, that false prophets will arise. But he says in verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You see, he gives this promise, a promise to those who persevere, a promise to those who overcome. Trouble is not the end. Trouble is really just the beginning, but the one who perseveres through it will be saved. So Jesus says, don't, don't give up. Persevere, endure. Now we should again point out that this trouble is real. I mean, wars and famines, that's maybe obvious, but even the persecution of which Jesus speaks is also real. And while the exact numbers are hard to pin down, many people say that more Christians have been killed for their faith in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. Persecution is, is real, it's alive, it's active. And without trying to sound alarmist, right, we may not be far away from regular persecution of one kind or another, even in our own day. We don't know what the future will bring. Jesus says, endure, persevere, don't give up. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Well, what does that mean, right? Will be saved. Saved from what? I mean, you're enduring the persecution, right? So saved from what? Well, this world is full of trouble. Jesus promises, though, later in the chapter that he will return and he will restore the world to what it was meant to be. That those who reject God and his son in this life at that time will face judgment and condemnation and punishment. We see that at the end of the chapter. But that those who persevere in looking to Jesus, those who trust him because of his death on the cross, because of his resurrection, they will be saved from that judgment and enter into the renewed world. And so when Jesus talks about being saved here, he means being saved from judgment on the one hand and being saved for life in the renewed creation on the other. So Jesus says, don't give up. The trouble will be prolonged, but the one who endures to the end 
will be saved. Next, Jesus says the trouble will be severe, so don't overvalue this life. What in the world does that mean? Well, verse 15 starts with the word so. And uh, the word so, Jesus is drawing conclusions from what he's just said. Jesus said the world will be characterized by trouble. The destruction of the temple is one example of that trouble. It's one example of the kind of trouble that will precede Jesus' return. When he talks about the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, he's talking about the coming destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD. Just as verse 9 speaks of tribulation, so verse 21 speaks of this great tribulation. This whole age, Jesus is saying, beginning with the destruction of the temple, will be characterized by these difficulties and troubles. The destruction of the temple is significant, right? It's particularly noteworthy for two reasons, at least. One, the temple was the visible sign of God's presence in the Old Covenant. The destruction of this temple is a sign, then, that that phase of God's work is done. God's plan is moving forward. That God's presence and blessing are no longer centered on a, a building, but found in a people. In the New Testament, the church is called God's holy temple. The people, not the building, but the people are called God's holy temple because God's spirit dwells in us. But the destruction of the temple is also noteworthy because of how terrible it would be. I mean, in fact, God says it's so terrible that if there had not been some chosen ones in Jerusalem at the time, he would have allowed everyone in the city to be destroyed. But he tempered his judgment for the sake of his people. Now, there's actually an echo here of God's discussion with Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you remember that back in the book of Genesis? God promised to spare Sodom for the sake of ten righteous people in the city. God's, just, God's justice is tempered uh, for the sake of his people. God's judgment is tempered for the sake of his people. But I bring that up only because uh, there are other echoes of Sodom here. Uh, God says that when uh, they see the coming destruction, they're not to turn back. They're not to go into their house in order to grab whatever they can before they run. They're, they're, they're not even to stop and grab their coat. They're simply to flee Jerusalem at the time. And, and maybe, again, you remember the story of Sodom, that the angel instructed Lot and his family not even to look back as they fled. And Lot's wife did look back and was punished for it. And the point in both of those places is this, that we're not to so love the world that we hold on to it. Uh, even as it's being judged. Or to put it differently, we're not to so love the world that we are caught up further in the troubles of life. When we self-indulgently hold on to this life, daily troubles, daily difficulties become that much worse. But when we hold on to life loosely, knowing that that troubles are, are just the beginnings of the birth of the new world, knowing that the one who endures into the end will be saved, we are enabled to endure the difficulties, the trials, the trouble. It won't crush us because our sights are set beyond that to something else, to the new world to come. So trouble is necessary, Jesus says. Don't be alarmed. It's going to be prolonged, so don't give up. It's going to be severe, so don't overvalue this life, so much so as to make the trouble worse on yourself, but set your sights on the world to come. Finally, Jesus says that trouble will end abruptly. 
So don't be taken in. Verses 23 and 24 say this. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. You know, Jesus' people have always longed for his return. Sometimes that grows into an unhealthy fixation. People who try to mine every Bible prophecy to mark down when and where things are going to happen. Sometimes we want it so bad that we can easily be taken in. Jesus promises that at times there will be false Christs. There will be false prophets who will come trying to lead people astray. Sometimes these people will even do such amazing things that if it were possible, which it isn't, but if it were possible, they would lead even the elect astray. And the point is that sometimes people will be pretty impressive. That may mean signs and wonders. In our day, it's probably more likely to mean flashy, high-tech worship or slick-talking preachers. The point is that there will be false Christs and false prophets, people leading others astray. Now, now that thought of false Christs, that may seem pretty remote to us. I mean, do people really claim to be Christ? Of course, the answer is actually yes, believe it or not. Um, Wikipedia, which I know is not the source of all knowledge on this planet, but Wikipedia actually has a page just for people who have claimed to be Jesus. And uh, it, it lists 35 people from the 18th to the 21st century who have claimed to be Christ, 22 of whom were in the 20th century. See, there are always people who are seeking to prey on our longing. There are always people seeking to use that and abuse that and mislead others. So Jesus says, verse 26, So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. He's saying if somebody comes to you saying that they have some special knowledge of who the Christ is or where the Christ is, don't believe them. If they point you to some out-of-the-way place in the desert or in the inner room, you know they're lying. Why do you know they're lying? Well, verse 27 tells us. Verse 27 says, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus will return in an instant. And it will be obvious to everyone, as abrupt and obvious as lightning in the sky. Don't be led astray. That brings us to to verses 29 to 31. Immediately after that time, Jesus says, immediately after the time of tribulation and trouble, the heavenly powers will be overthrown, the kingdoms of the earth will fall, all the tribes of the earth will see him, which will bring mourning to the peoples of the earth who have rejected him. And at the trumpet sound, his angels will gather his chosen ones from every part of the earth. It will be an abrupt and conspicuous overturning of the world as we know it. Jesus' return will be obvious and will follow this time of trouble. The trouble is necessary, right? So don't be alarmed. It's prolonged, but don't give up. It's severe, so don't overvalue this life. But it will end abruptly when Jesus appears. So don't be taken in. Jesus says we are to endure trouble. 
Now, enduring is really a, a, a negative stance, right? I'm enduring this trouble, this pain. But there's a, a positive stance as well in this passage. We're to endure difficulty even as we expectantly stay awake for Christ's return. Again, there are, there are three main things to point out here as we move on to verses 32 to 51. And uh, you can see them again in your bulletin that Jesus encourages us to know that he is near, uh, not to speculate about his coming, but to be ready, right? Jesus is near. Don't speculate. Be ready. So first, uh, the verses 32 to 35 encourage us to know that Jesus is near. Now, maybe there was a, a fig tree nearby as Jesus is talking with his disciples that Jesus could point to. And he, he points to it and he points to the leaves on the tree. And he says that the leaves on the fig tree are a sign that summer is near. Not that summer is here, but that summer is near, right? which there's a distinction, right? And so verse 33, Jesus continues, So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Well, when you see all these things, know that he is near. Well, what are these things? Well, these things, I think, can't refer to anything in verses 29 to 31 because verses 29 to 31 seem to give us this rapid-fire succession of events all happening pretty much at once, saying that this is what will happen at Jesus' return. And as one writer put it, Jesus' return cannot be the sign of itself. Right? The lesson of the fig tree is when you see one thing happen you know that another thing is not far behind. So what Jesus then must be saying, he must be referring to everything before those verses. So he's saying, when you see all this trouble, know that Jesus is not far behind. He is near. Jesus is saying that the trouble in this life, the trouble that we experience, is a sign that he is near. Verse 34 goes on to say, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And there we have this phrase again, these things. What, what were the these things that we talked about a second ago? It's all the troubles, all the trials leading up to Jesus' return. So Jesus is saying again that this generation, the generation in which he lived, I think that's what that phrase is referring to, uh, this generation will not pass away until all these troubles and trials come. Well, the troubles and trials have come. And they continue as the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is near. Now that may seem like an odd statement. Because what that means is he's been near for almost 2,000 years. Maybe you feel that this language of nearness, well, that, that's not quite right. Maybe that's not fair. Here's what Peter says about that. Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. See, the Bible itself predicts that people would come after some prolonged period of time and ask, well, where is he? And don't forget, one of Jesus' points in Matthew 24 is that the trouble would be prolonged, right? That, the, that trouble uh, is not the end. That trouble is just the beginning of the birth pains. What then does nearness mean? Well, I think of it like this. I don't know if this is helpful. You can tell me afterwards. 
But I think of it like, uh, like this, right? If, if God had an outline of history, you know, create the world, rebuke the serpent, make outrageous promises to Abraham, immediately after times of trouble, the days in which we live right now, would be Jesus' return. Peter encourages us, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years are as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter's saying, look, don't try to figure out God's timing. God's not wasting time. He is being patient. He is giving us a chance to repent. Jesus is near. He's not here, but he is near. Which brings us to verses 36 to 41, which encourage us not to speculate. It's interesting because while verse 33 says, you know that he is near, verse 36 tells us that no one knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return. So there's a tension there, right? We know that he's near, but we don't know the day or the hour. Verse 36 reads like this. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think, and this is more of a side note, but it's probably important. When Jesus says, look, no one knows, not the Son, but the Father. Right? What does that mean that Jesus says not even the Son knows the day or the hour? I think what he's getting at is that Jesus, in his humanity, doesn't know. You remember, Jesus is fully God and fully man. And that Jesus, as a man, grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus, in his humanity, there were things that he had to grow in knowledge, according to the scriptures. Even as in his divinity, he knew all things. That's a mystery. I don't pretend to understand it, but that's what the scriptures teach. So verse 36 and following, though, tell us that just like at the time of the flood in Noah's day, people were eating and drinking and living life. And suddenly the flood came upon them and swept them away. They had no idea what happened. So will the coming of Jesus be. He says, look, two guys are going to be working in the field or sitting in their office space or stacking boxes in the warehouse or whatever they're doing, right? One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, preparing food. One will be taken and the other will be left. And the point is that Jesus' return will be sudden. It will be in an instant that those who belong to him will be gathered to him, that those who do not will be swept away as in the flood. And Jesus' application of this is clear. Verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Why does Jesus stress this? Stay awake. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Why is he stressing that? He's stressing it. He's trying to cut off our speculation. He's saying you can't know when. You can know, verse 33, that trouble means that Jesus is near. The world is full of trouble. You cannot know, verse 36, the day or the hour. Jesus could come back at any moment. You would think that Jesus' words are clear. But, of course, you know that that hasn't stopped people 
from trying to predict when Jesus will come back. Uh, again, Jesus was predicted to return in, in 1994, in 2000, in 2011, and 2012, and 2013, and most recently at the lunar eclipse of September 27th and 28th of this year. If I was only preaching this sermon last week, right, it would be so perfect. Jesus is near, but he doesn't want us to speculate. He wants us to be ready. Verses 43 and 44. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If you knew someone was going to break into your home at a particular time, you would be there waiting for him. Jesus' conclusion from that in verse 44, right, is therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's kind of an interesting conclusion because Jesus says you don't know when he is coming, so you need to be ready all the time. What does that mean? What does that mean to be ready for Jesus' return? Well, Jesus tells us in the next few verses, verses 45 to 47. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Here's what it means to be ready for Jesus. It means to be like the faithful and wise servant who's a good steward of what his master has given him, such that when his master returns, he finds him doing what he left him to do. And so the question to ask ourselves is, is, am I doing what Christ has left me to do? Christ is our master. We are his servants. Are we doing what Christ has left for us to do? Which, of course, begs the question, you have to ask, well, what has he left for me to do? And on some level, that question is, is going to be answered differently for different people, isn't it? Each of us have uh, different skills, callings, vocations, situations in life. Uh, think about Ephesians 5 and 6. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. See, wherever and whatever our calling, we are to serve the Lord in that calling. We are to give our lives to his service in whatever we do. Of course, we could add to that something which is universal to every Christian. You know, we skipped verse 14 a while back. Verse 14 says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Which, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is waiting for all nations to hear the gospel, only that up until the end, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. And we all have different roles in that, don't we? But it is our collective mission as the church. Our mission as the church is to proclaim the gospel to the nations. Are you doing what Christ has left for you to do? 
Jesus promises a reward to his faithful servants. But then you have verses 48 to 51, where if we begin to think that, that this world is, is ours, that we're not stewards of God's creation, we're not servants in God's house, but we begin to mistreat our fellow servants, we begin to misuse God's good gifts, well, Jesus says, woe to us. See, in the end, there are fundamentally two ways of living in this life. Living in submission to our master, however imperfectly as stewards, as servants, who lovingly and longingly await for the return of Jesus. Or living in rebellion against our master, thinking that we are our own sovereign, claiming autonomy, living in self-indulgence full of abuse and oppression, which will lead to judgment. Jesus is near. Are you ready? The most important thing you, of course, can do to get ready is to trust in him, to trust in him, first and foremost, for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the, that's the first step in serving him as your king, to know his mercy, his royal mercy, which he purchased with his blood at the cross. That's the first step in serving him and in getting ready for his coming. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that, that you would make us ready, that you would work in us by your spirit, that you would turn our hearts to you, that we would delight in your mercy, that we would serve you with our whole hearts. Not because we think that somehow by doing that we can earn our way into heaven, but because we are your servants and you are our king. Let us delight in that fact. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.